The scripture reading for tonight is from Luke 24, and it's verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the leaven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other woman with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Welcome to Regeneration. My name is Albert. And if you're new here, you might be wondering why in the world are we doing this like two, three months early? Isn't this like Easter? We pick a book of the Bible and we go straight through it when we don't skip any chapters or verses. And so this is where we're at. I think it's like three and a half years later. So you're at the end and we'll be done probably in the end of the year or something like that. But um, no, we'll be done around March. Okay? (laughs) We will. We will. I'm sick, and uh, what I've been told, well, probably some of you are like, yes, you are. I've been told that I preach my best messages when I'm sick. I don't know if that's true or if it's just sympathy, but either way, whether it's a perceived truth or the real truth, here we go. But let me start with prayer. God, thank you for your word, and we love it. And Holy Spirit, may you reveal to us what you want us to learn not just for the accumulation of knowledge and not just for conviction, but for changed lives. And so we ask, God, for transformation within each person who hears your word. Let them hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the first chapter of Luke, Luke gives us an introduction that begins with his objectives in providing his gospel. And if you look back to chapter 1, verse 3, he wrote this, that he had followed all things closely for some time past. That He's really clear to indicate to us that he did his due diligence, that he did his research, that he did not set out to write this biography of Jesus to just include some random stories and some theories about Jesus, that he wrote this to give us a spiritual and an historical record. He also set out to provide a systematic order of events, uh, this structure, this structure that, that would greatly benefit anyone who was going to read his biography. And he did this, why? It's in verse 4, to give us certainty concerning the things we have been taught. Now I share this background with you to remind you that these aren't made up stories, And Luke made sure to give us that detail in his first chapter because those objectives of him following all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account so that we may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught gets carried through from the first chapter all the way through to this last chapter that he wrote about Jesus' resurrection and ascension. It's carried throughout. 
And I bring this up because there are people who like to kind of pick and choose what is legitimate about the Bible and what is not. And the majority of the world would not dispute certain teachings of the Bible, such as the Golden Rule or the Sermon on the Mount or the things that Jesus taught about forgiveness and love and grace and mercy and all those sorts of things. No one would dispute those things. But what would people argue about? Something like this. The resurrection. Where the separation occurs is where this so-called scientific, this so-called empirical level of evidence starts to collapse in the eyes of science. Where science has a difficulty explaining what happened in the Bible, that, that's where some people make claims against the Bible that, you know, that's, that's hogwash, that is all mythology, that is folklore, that is tall tales. And things like the resurrection fall into that camp. Well, people in that camp are actually in very good company because that camp is where all the disciples were until they saw the proof for themselves. Right? Until they witnessed for themselves the things that happened. Right? You look at the gospel account. Isn't that what happened? You jump to verses 10 and 11. Listen to what it says. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. It's the same company. It's the same camp. If the disciples themselves initially rejected the idea of the resurrection as an idle tale, Why would it surprise any of us if the world rejects the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus? John recorded a story of doubting Thomas for us in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Reads this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now in Luke's account, who were the first people to visit Jesus' tomb? The women who came with him from Galilee. Those were the first people. Now women back in this day weren't given much respect or dignity. A Jewish man would pray to God and he would thank God that he wasn't born a woman and that he wasn't born a Gentile. This is how women were viewed. A woman's testimony would be thrown out in court. If she was to come out as a witness or an eyewitness to a crime, that would be disallowed. Do you see how revolutionary Christianity is? If you're a woman, I hope so, right? Before this, women did not have the honor and the respect that they'd have nowadays. And it's still not quite there. But can you imagine if the Bible didn't exist where it would be? 
Who was given the respect and the dignity to be the first eyewitnesses to an empty tomb? Women. In a day and age when they weren't given squat. And God knew that a woman's testimony was not accepted, but what did He do? (laughs) Forget you. I don't care. I don't care. You guys got it all wrong. And God knew that things weren't done right, that the women weren't looked at correctly in honorable, in, in, in honorable ways, in, in respect. And so He gives them the good news first. This is one of the most beautiful proofs of the validity of the gospel. Why? Because who in the world would write this unless it was true? Who would write a document to a world that did not honor women, respect women, whose testimony would be thrown out in court, and yet put them as the first witnesses of an empty tomb. That would be silly. So this is one of the most beautiful proofs, examples that the Gospel record is true, because why else would it be written like this? It's only written because it's historical. Because it's true. Verse 1, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Now they are in reference to the women who Luke wrote about in Luke chapter 23, verses 55 and 56. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now something great about Luke is how he puts the spotlight on women. Now, for example, Luke chapter 23, verse 27, Luke didn't clump the women with the great multitude. Instead, he wrote, And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Another example of this is in Luke chapter 23, verse 49, And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, why do I bring this up? Because back in chapter 1, Luke was sure to tell us that he followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account so that we may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. So since those were his objectives, why does he put the spotlight on the women? Because they were getting it all wrong. See how disrespectful they were to them? See how dishonorable they were to them? And Luke is saying, like, I think we have something wrong here. And I need to point this out. Keep in mind, there is no PC back in this day, right? Actually, there's no PC until like two decades ago, right? Let's be honest. There's no PC until then. Right? Back when I was in... uh, I I guess I'm aging myself, but you can't tell my age because I'm Asian. Um, (laughs) But back when I was in high school, there was no PC. Not even when I was in college. That's how old I am. You can't guess how old I am. I have three children. But they didn't have PC. They didn't care about PC. And so he didn't gain favor saying, oh, I'm going to include women on this. Actually, he'd get egg on his face. What are you talking about? What are you putting women in here? That's stupid, dude. And he's he's like, no, it's just true. It's historical. I know it's a really tough pill for the rest of the world to swallow, but this is truth. This is the Bible. This is the scriptures that the Lord is telling me to write. And he wrote this because it is true. And that it historically happened. That's why he wrote it. And we know that these women went home to prepare spices and ointments with the intent to come right back after the Sabbath. 
That was their intent. And so they were planning to go to Jesus' tomb right at daybreak, right at the break of dawn. And this is the top priority for them. They had already prepared the spices and the ointments. And the only thing keeping them away from that tomb was the Sabbath. That's the only reason why they didn't. Otherwise, they would have done it sooner. And so they were there and they were ready. They were so ready. You look back to Luke chapter 23 and verse 56. These women were ready and they went to the tomb at daybreak because those guys that handled the body before them, you know, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and all their servants, uh, they made a mess. They didn't do Jesus right. They didn't do this right. So they're watching all this and they're like, we're coming back, right? Because, And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're coming back. You bet you we're coming back. And so they got all prepared and they're ready to go. And now they're just counting down. They didn't have clocks back then. They're counting down the sundial and it's going and it's time. And it's been a few days. What do you think has been happening those few days to Jesus' body? I mean, really, what were they expecting to find? Because what happens to a corpse after a few days? If you don't know, bring out some ground beef or something and set it out on your counter and let it sit there for a little while. You don't even have to wait a few days. Decomposition. Rot. It's going to smell awful. It's going to look awful. What do you think they're going to find when they start peeling back the linen with all the ointments and all that kind of stuff? What what are they going to find? What drove them to do this, even though they followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus on all their servants and that 75 pounds of mixture and stuff like that and the linen cloth? And What caused them to follow them, see what they did, and see that they tried to give them a proper burial, but then they were like, oh, we got to come back. What drove them to do all of that? Love. They loved Jesus. They loved Him so much. They, they wanted to see Him. They wanted to see it done right. And they saw that it wasn't done right. And so they didn't care how disgusting this was going to be. They wanted to do right. I think moms know all about this. Moms know all about this. And even if you're not a mom, you you have like a a maternal instinct within you as a woman, I believe. Call me a feminine, whatever. I I stood up for you in the beginning, all right? So... Your child can be having things coming out of both ends, right? But it doesn't matter because you're going to take care of your baby. You are. Now, I'll give you an example. During our Christmas vacation, my two youngest children were really, really sick. They were throwing up several times a night. Both of them are potty trained, but we had to put pull-ups on them because they were that sick. And so... Who we are, and we're getting Pedialyte in them, and we're doing everything that we can. Now, keep in mind that my wife is pregnant, and if you didn't know that, my wife is pregnant. Um, so there, there you go. Let's, our fourth child is coming. But this one out of the four has been the most difficult by far. And this first trimester, the most difficult by far. So keep this in mind. While she is sick in bed, she can't do much. I'm taking the kids out during our vacation because she's so sick. She can't do anything. She's just nauseous. She's throwing up herself. Every scent makes her sick. Every sight of food makes her sick. Everything makes her sick. Except Taco Bell. 
No. We, we never eat Taco Bell. And so, so I'm thinking, my kids are sick and Taco Bell. Hmm. But it was not. It's not true because she was fine. No, she wasn't. She was throwing up. Taco Bell. But except when she's pregnant, right? So she's so sick. And in the middle of the night, my babies are throwing up. And guess what? She's not sick. She's holding them. They are projectile vomiting. It's all over the bed. It's all over her hair. It's in her face. It's coming down her clothing. It's Taco Bell vomit. It's so disgusting. And in the middle of all of that, love prevailed. She didn't think about that stuff, right? She's so sick. None of that disgusting stuff deterred her from caring for her babies, for loving her babies, even at a time when buttered toast disgusted her. Oh, buttered toast, it stinks so bad. What are you talking about? That smells delicious. Right? That's, that is divine. And, and, and like, oh, that looks disgusting. Look at the, the, the melted butter on toast looks like heaven. That's like touching heaven, you know? And, and like, oh, that's so gross, that sound. What are you talking about? The best part of buttered toast is the crunch. It is not the taste. It is not, it is, that is the best part. So, all that stuff that made her sick, gone. When throw up. Now, just so you don't get the wrong idea, I helped too. And, um, <laughs> but this story is not about my love for my children. It is about my wife's love. So don't get concerned about what I did. I did plenty. So let's just leave it at that. And that's what love does. Okay, so no matter how repulsive something might be to you, you deal with it because your love outweighs that repulsiveness. Now, what else does love do? Love doesn't have you thinking right, right? It, uh, it helps you look past what you are capable of. All right, so in Mark chapter 16, verse 3, the women said to one another, they have all these spices, they have all these supplies, and they're going, and then what do they say? Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? You get that? They prepared all this stuff and they're running and make sure we're there at the break of dawn. And uh, Oh yeah, how are we getting in? I don't care, but we're going. And so they just go, right? They, they don't think about this ahead of time. They just knew that they wanted to prepare Jesus' corpse properly. And whatever obstacles there, well, I don't know, we'll just deal with it when we get there, you know, whatever. And so here we are, verses 2 and 3. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine the shock? They've been waiting days. They've been preparing spices. They've been waiting for this hour. And they get to the stone. And I don't know what they're thinking. Whether it's like, oh, hey, it's open. Or, it's open. Like, well, what, what happened? And they're there and Jesus' body is gone. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this. Perplexed, the Greek word 
here means to not know how to decide or to not know what to do. They didn't know which direction to turn. They were at a total loss with themselves. Everything that they expected not happening there. No stone, no body. And there they were at the crack of dawn, no doubt waiting for this very hour since they left the body a few days ago. The only obstacle to them was the Sabbath that they had to get out of there. So they are there, busy, preparing spices, having supplies in hand, running to the tomb. No body. And they didn't know what happened. And they didn't know what happened. And, and the resurrection did not register with them. The resurrection was something thought differently. The Jews thought that the resurrection would happen in the last day. In the last day. Not a few days after you die. You look at John chapter 11. This is the story about Lazarus. And you start in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. You skip down to verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So they were familiar with that. They knew about that. But Jesus' resurrection a few days later, that's not something that they thought about. That's not even something that is, is, is on their radar at all. Carrying on in verse 4. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? They didn't know Jesus was alive. They went to the tomb to seek a dead body, to seek Jesus' corpse. That's why they went to the tomb with the spices. They wouldn't have gone to the tomb with spices if they thought he was alive because there would be nothing to spice up. right? They'd be going, he's alive, let's go! They wouldn't be going like, oh, let's bring the dead stuff. right? They were going because they were going to pay their respects, but there was no thought that he could be alive. Now, this is a question for us. How many of us go about our faith in Jesus as though He was dead? We expect that from the world, right? Because in the world, there's a lot of people who seek Him among the dead. Many people who just see Him as a great man or a brilliant philosopher or powerful prophet or influential teacher. But thinking that He's been dead for a couple of thousand of years, that's what they believe. But how about us as followers of Christ, as Christians, not believing that Jesus is alive today? That He's dead. But He's alive. He resurrected. He still changes lives. The Jesus that we serve, the Jesus we love and worship, is not a story and not just a memory. He's here, right now, in our very presence. And our relationship with Him is not just a bunch of stories about Jesus in the Bible. It's with Jesus Himself. And He reveals things about Himself in the Bible, but you can talk to Him and He responds to you. He's not just a memory or a belief or a philosophy. He's a living being who is active in our life if we will choose that. 
if we will choose to have that relationship with him. And the women at the tomb didn't expect that. And unfortunately, there are many believers today who don't expect a living Jesus in their life either. They're just reading a historical book. Just reading a textbook. And you see this hopelessness in Luke chapter 24, verse 21. This is on the road to Emmaus, which we'll get to next week. And this is what it reads in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Did you hear that? We had hoped. Meaning, they lost hope. And then you get this picture of hopelessness in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. You get that sense of hopelessness? They are behind locked doors because they are scared to death of being killed. Because they all thought that he was dead. But these two men, these angels, explained what happened because they needed a reminder. And so after that reminder, these dots started connecting for them. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that makes sense. Right? And, and God does that. Why? Because He does not want us to be led astray. He does not want us to be misled. Listen to what it reads here in verses 6 and 7. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and on the third day rise. Remember when Jesus said... Right? Remember when Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Remember when He said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him and on the third day He will rise. Luke 18, verses 31 through 33. Remember when he said those things? Verse 8. And they remembered his words. They remembered what he said in light of all that was happening before them. The empty tomb started to make sense. Those dots started to connect. And this is an important lesson for us to take away this evening. You notice how the angels pointed them back to what Jesus said. They pointed out to them the remembrance of what He taught them. Essentially, it's this. The Scriptures. Because what we have in the Gospels is what Jesus said, right? See, we need to know the Scriptures, what Jesus taught, so that when things happen, when there are these supernatural occurrences of things happening, that we are grounded in the Bible so that when we see things, we know that we aren't being misled. That when they say that the end of the world is in October, we can say, mm-mm, nobody knows the time or hour, mm-mm, that's not right. Right? So that we know these things. And the angels didn't point out something new. They pointed out things Jesus said. And the women were able to verify that. Because they could be like, He said that? Yeah, remember when we were over there? He said that. Well, yeah, I remember that. Okay. Because women have very good memories. It's like us in our Bibles. Right? It's like us in our Bibles. When, when someone tells you something, check it out. When I say something, check it out. When I'm just throwing these Bible verses, I'm going to start making things up. 
Because you guys, I don't know if you check them out or not. So, but, but check it out, confirm it. And in order for us to know what the Bible says and doesn't say, we, we need to study it. And if the angels did say something that Jesus didn't say, they could have said to one another, he didn't say that. You're false. I don't care about your dazzling clothes. Yeah, right? That's not what he said. But in verse 8, it says that they remembered his words. This is key. They remembered his words. You cannot remember something that you don't know. You learn it. But you, in order to remember it, you have to already have it. So we have to know our Bibles. We have to know it in order to remember it. And if you wonder why you may be distant from God, you need to ask yourself, how well do you know the Scriptures? How well do you know them? And as you know them, you can gain confidence in your relationship with God by knowing the Bible because you can lean on those promises. And if you want to learn more about God, to know God, to meet God, it's through Jesus Christ. And much of Jesus is revealed in the Bible. And I say much because there is an element of faith. You have to have faith. Faith is not there to just you know chuck it and I have intellect and that's all. You have to have faith. But having faith without the Scriptures is also dangerous. Because there's this great opportunity for you to be led astray. Right? The next fad, the next Christian fad that comes in, ooh, that's it. When the Bible clearly says, like, no, that's not it. And having the Scriptures without faith, that's not a good thing either. Right? You're, you're spiritually dead. The Bible is just a textbook to you then. It's not living. It's not the living Word. See, we need both of them. And so if you feel distant from God, ask yourself how well you know the Bible. And it's not to say that if you know the Bible that you know God. Because we all know some of those, don't we? I know more of those than I care to admit. And I know some people who know the Bible really well, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's textbook. And they know what it says, but what they know doesn't change them. They just know what it says. And they don't do what it says. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The angel's visitation and what they said validated what the women saw because they remembered what Jesus said. Verses 9 and 10. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanne and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And this is such a hopeful message. These women must have been so ecstatic. You know, Jesus rose. I can't believe this. And we get to tell this message. And all those years that we spent following Him, those aren't wasted years, actually. And isn't it awesome that, yeah, we spent all this money on these spices and we're broke, but who cares? Throw them all away. And this is validation of our discipleship to Jesus that it wasn't a lie. Verse 11, But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. You're women. What do you know? That's foolish. This is an idle tale. In other words, that's nonsense. What do you mean the stones just rolled away? What do you mean the body is gone? What do you mean two fancy dressed guys are telling you this story? That is nonsense. 
Can't you see that we are scared? We are locked behind our doors, worrying that those Jewish folks are going to come in and do what they did to Jesus to us. And here you are telling us these stories about dazzling white, dressed in whatever men, and telling us these things. But think about this. This is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection right here. If you have difficulty believing the resurrection, you need to think about this. Because here we have the majority of Jesus' disciples throwing the towel in. They've quit. They're done. They were not waiting for this news. They weren't waiting for this news to, oh, please, let this be true. My morale, it's just my morale so low. They have given up. These guys are a group of doubters, skeptics, you know, who, who thought that the news given to them by these women, that is nonsense. Can you get a sense of how duped these guys feel right now? The guy that they've given their life to for the past three years. Given everything up. Everything. Can you imagine how disillusioned these guys feel? And they are just frozen. They are frozen in fear and disbelief of what just happened to their leader on that cross. Hanging naked. Thorn of crowns there, people making fun of him, spitting him, beating on him, poking him with the spear, nailing him to the cross, cursing him, all this kind of stuff. And then a few days later, they're totally changed and they change the world? Really? I mean, what happened? I mean, how is that possible? Because they saw the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how it happened. How in the world are you going to explain Christianity to this day? Have you ever thought about how Christianity arose? How is it even possible given the history of Christianity? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus' followers are totally defeated. They witness the shameful, humiliating death of their leader. Totally demoralized. They go into hiding. And then they come out? And they change the world? A few days later? Doesn't that kind of like play mind games with you? Like, how in the world do they do that? Because if he was dead, wouldn't they just be still scared? The only reason why they're not fearful anymore is because he rose from the dead. He rose. How else is the rise of Christianity explained in the light of history? There is no other valid explanation. There are a ton of explanations. We don't have time. There are books written about resurrection and all these theories and all this stuff. And most of them that I've read are even more miraculous than the resurrection itself. Seriously. Seriously. It's just so crazy. You're like, what do you believe? If you believe that, how can you not believe the resurrection? Because here you're believing like three resurrections as opposed to just Jesus. It's crazy. Belief in Jesus was all but dead before his resurrection. There were no followers. These guys were done. They just wanted to pay their last respects. The women just wanted to pay their last respects and that was it. These guys didn't even go do it. These guys are in hiding. And all of his disciples thought these women were full of nonsense and they saw it. They were just like, you're full of it. Forget it. Except for one. Verse 12. But Peter. But Peter. Now out of all the guys, Peter? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you think that after all that he did... He'd be the last to take off running to the tomb. 
Right? I mean, he, he's the one that denied Jesus three times after giving the speech. That, I will never leave. They will, but I will never. Right? And, and all this kind of stuff. And, and he, he, I mean, the guy couldn't even stand up to the interrogation of two adolescent girls. Right? I mean, he couldn't even do that. And Peter, out of all these guys, he's probably the one with, you know, failure written across his head in like Aramaic or something. Verse 12, But rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now in one sense, it's surprising that it's Peter because of all his failures. But in another sense, it's not that surprising because Peter's a risk taker. This is, this is Peter. Peter's the one who stepped out of the boat to walk on water, right? Matthew chapter 14, verses 28-29. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now granted, he failed in the next verse. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt But it was Peter who was the risk taker. It was Peter who had the guts to declare that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's the same Peter who rebuked Jesus several verses later. No failure, right? Verses 22 through 23 in chapter 16 of Matthew. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But it was the same Peter who was this risk taker and so confident that he could stand with Jesus until the very end. Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then you find Peter's failure. In verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You were also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not bleepity bleep know the bleepity bleep man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Failure after humongous failure after humongous failure. And what do we find? Peter rose and ran to the tomb. You bet you he did. You bet he did. Why? That's his only hope. That's his only hope. And he knows from his history that when he sank, Jesus is the one that pulled him up. When he rebuked Jesus and Jesus told him, you're Satan, okay, come back. You're still one of mine. We're going to go to Jerusalem. You denied me three times. Where is his hope? It's only in Jesus. 
It's our only hope too. The resurrection of Jesus is our only hope. It's our only hope in overcoming our failures. However messed up you've been, whatever you have said or have not said, whatever you have done or not done, however messed up you are, whomever you have hurt, there is hope in Jesus because Jesus makes wrong things right. He pulls you up when you sink. He gives you chance after chance when you say and do foolish things. He forgives you when you are clearly in the wrong if you repent. Essentially, you need to rise up and run to Him. And that's what Peter does here. And as Christians, there is no fear of failure because we serve a God who resurrects. Whatever you've killed... He can make alive. Right? And you have a shot of living because of Jesus' resurrection. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now you jump to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ's resurrection. The one who can make any wrong right. The one who loves you even though you might feel that you are unlovable. Now, here's a question for you. Do you live a resurrection life? Do you live a life knowing that He died and He resurrected for you? Or are you stuck in the world of suspicion and of fear and distrust and anxiety and worry and doubt and disbelief? How much does your life indicate a resurrection life that you believe in a resurrected Jesus and that you live in hope and joy and love and peace and goodness and faithfulness and kindness? See, Christians, we tend to be really good at confrontation and challenging beliefs that don't line up with ours. We're really good at that. Now, I'm not saying that tender confrontation can be a good thing and that challenging beliefs that don't line up with the Scriptures can be a good thing. Absolutely, they can. But whatever happened to us attracting people and charming people into the kingdom of God as opposed to saying we stand for these things and if you don't we're going to shoot you from here and you're not allowed to come in 
right? We stand for this and you go out. As opposed to you and I know that the Bible is the truth and we have the truth. Open the door. What's going to change it? Come on. No, I don't have any guns. No, I don't have any arrows. Come in, come in, come in. Let's not lose the heritage and the legacy of what Jesus' resurrection life gave us. We are able to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable, to heal the unhealable. We are allowed to do such that we are given the opportunity to touch the untouchable. That's the resurrection life that Jesus has given us. That's the legacy that we are given. We don't have to get innovative on how to combat sin. We have to get innovative on how to love the sinner. That's what we have to do. Ask yourself, how do I view sinners? How do I look people who are separated from God? Is it with compassion? Is it with joy, humility, gentleness, humor, discernment, wisdom, respect? Do we look at them through the lens of how Jesus would look at them? Christianity is not about building a fortification. Because really, how hard is that? That's nothing. That's thousands of churches across the United States. Thousands who have built this fort mentality. And you know what they all have in common? They're dying. They're dying. It's not that hard to die. Just stop eating and stop drinking. It's hard to live. To, To live out your faith. Right? It's not about, oh, let's hunker down on what we believe and, and just everyone else is wrong. Don't look at them. Don't look at them. You know, just... Ugh. That's nothing. You know what? Satan would love if all churches did that. Why? One less one to worry about. Hunkering down, just... Def- oh, just protecting yourself. Never mind. You, you guys do what you do. Shoot each other, wound, you know, just shoot the shoot your wounded and all that stuff. Now, can you imagine if the, the first church did that? If the first disciples did that, right? Jesus comes in, locked door behind them, talks to Thomas, and they're like, oh, Jesus, you're back. Oh, cool. Um, all right. Uh, we have to do what? Go out, nations make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, uh, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What? we scared or in Oakland we scurred and and, and it's like uh, no I, I, I no I, I don't want to do that mm-hmm that's what you're doing wow because it's challenging to love it is challenging to evangelize it is challenging to disciple that is the commission that Jesus has given us we weren't told to yeah lock your doors and just wait just die in there just die in there. I'll see you when you're dead. Right? That's not why the church is here. That is not why we're here, right here, and right now. You are here, right? Right? Are you? You're here. Right now, and you're right here. Why is that? For the people around you. That's why you're here, and right now. Because if it's not you, then who is it? 
If it's not you guys, then who is it? I mean, where's the next closest church? I think it is 8th Ave. So between here and 8th Ave, this is, this is you. And going this way, you need to skip the church that's down there. You have to go a little further into Chinatown. And it's you guys. And if you go towards Alameda, you don't get to a church until Alameda. And if you go this way, it's several blocks. But we're here in Rome right now, so let's take those risks in our faith. By knowing that failure is part of this equation, but because of the resurrected life in Jesus, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your promises. And I ask God that You would forgive us if any of us have had just this fortification mentality. I pray You would equip us to go out to share Your Gospel knowing that many people will view it as idle tales. But we thank You for what Luke wrote to us because he did his homework to write to us the things so that we would know with certainty the things we have been taught. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't have a relationship with You. I pray that You would work in their heart, that You would work in their mind, that the questions that they have, that they would be answered. And those who may not be walking really closely with You right now, Lord, I pray that that changes. I pray that they would have a thriving relationship with You. In Jesus' name, Amen.